We, uh, so as a reminder, our main focus in here, as uh, some of you know, is we're focusing on uh, what you believe and why you believe it with the goal of not being equipped to stand up on TV and do an academic level formal debate with an uh, sort of aggressive atheist, but to be able to do what we're calling like street level apologetics, which is far more likely for everyone, right? Conversations with family, with friends, with coworkers, with neighbors, about different aspects of your faith, what you believe, why you believe it, and just equipping you so you can feel comfortable to be able to do that. So over the last couple of weeks, I was gone, I think the last two Sundays, and you've been talking about the arguments for the existence of God, right? Um, so I just want to briefly review those. I think you were talking about the teleological argument and the uh, cosmological arguments last week. We really only just focused on the... Just teleological. Okay. So, uh, you guys weren't here, right? No, I wasn't here. Rita, oh, Stephen, were you here? Steve wasn't here. It so, comes down to you, Rita. Oh, no. Don't make me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't read. I absolutely am drawing a blank. Okay. You'll what if I said it's the argument from design? It still wouldn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Love it. I'm glad it's recorded. We can always go back yes, to it. <laughs> well, telos is just a Greek, it's a fancy long word that comes from a Greek word for like like end, end or goal or point. So, uh, and the four kind of core components of this argument um, that Michael laid out last week is, think about it, the universe has an amazing amount of design and intelligibility. Right? I mean, you look, you see design everywhere. So either this intelligible order is the product of chance or it's the product of intelligent design. And then Christians would argue from that that such design comes only from an intelligent designer and therefore the universe must come from an intelligent designer, God. So he had the image of the, you know, if you found, we're well, walking through the woods, you talked about that, right? Like if you're walking through the woods, you found a watch, like a pocket watch. Um, you wouldn't say, oh, well, this, you know, random forces of nature just happened to bring together this intricately designed piece of machinery. You say, no, that must be somebody who designed this and built it and put it together in just this way. And the same is true when we look at the universe around us. You look at the, the way the human eye works or the kidney or <laughs> pretty much any part of the human body, uh, let alone systems, birds, animals, plants. Kari is teaching in biology right now um, about photosynthesis. I mean, it's astonishing when you get down to the level of detail what is happening in plant cells, which are... Uh, anyway, so all of that, it, it doesn't prove God, it doesn't prove Jesus, it doesn't prove the resurrection, but it gives an overwhelming amount of evidence that points us towards the plausibility of belief in the existence of God. And um, it's a very, I think it's a very strong argument. The more I study, especially in the area of science, the more affirmed I get in my faith and in what I believe. It's, it's really amazing. We spend a long time talking about that. Um, and some really great resources available. This week, we're going to talk about um, the formation, basically like, how and why should I trust the Bible? Like the Bible 
is kind of the, the nothing more fundamental to our belief and our faith than the Bible. Without this text, we're lost, right? We, we would have enough general revelation to recognize that we're uh, culpable, guilty, stand guilty before God. We get that from uh, Romans. But, uh, but not enough specific revelation to know what in the world we could do about it. If we didn't have the Bible, we'd be guilty and really not know what to do about it. So, but this raises the question, like, can we actually trust the Bible that we have? I mean, you've got it on your phone or in your backpack or something. How can we trust that this book that you have right now actually is God's word? We say it's God's word, but how can we really trust that it is? Good morning. Good morning. Um, especially because it's not even one book, right? I mean, we call it one book, but it's, it's really 66 books with 40 different authors written over 1,000 plus Years. I mean, how do we know that it's accurate, that mistakes weren't introduced along the way, that uh, all the many times it was copied? We don't have originals anymore. So how do we know that the book that you have um, doesn't have any mistakes in it? Uh, why do Roman Catholics and Protestants have different Bibles? Did the Emperor Constantine determine the canon? Um, what about the Apocrypha? What about books like the Gospel of Thomas? Or, um, you know, you see reports on the news that be, oh, we found some new lost gospel and, you know, it changes everything. It's like, what, what do we make of all this stuff? And so if the goal of this class is to help you know what you believe and why you should believe it, then we have to spend time getting that foundation straight. And this is not just, like I said, for an academic purposes this comes up in conversations all the time so you remember the da vinci code that was like 20 years ago now seriously yeah it's a long time no maybe not 20 years all kinds of questions that raised i mean he made all kinds of crazy assumptions uh, about how the bible was formed but even if someone hasn't read the Da Vinci Code, that kind of thinking has crept into our culture uh, extensively. So there was a, a Newsweek article. I was, was um, saw so this in December 2014, and and the author said, "No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you." At best. We've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand copy copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. In other words, you can't trust anything. You've never actually read the Bible. You've just read this random mishmash of documents that we happen to call the Bible. So uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, the famous apologist, uh, uh, famous atheist, um, where did he say here? Page 10. He said something very similar. He said, he said uh, uh, the Bible is simply a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us, and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. Now, 
this is obviously they're trying to misrepresent what we believe. Now, there's some truth in what they're saying. I mean, we don't have the originals. We are dealing with copies of copies. We are dealing with translations. The Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and, and, and Greek. And even the Hebrew was, we have like old Hebrew and then sort of newer Hebrew. And um, so, and these were brought together over time. They were uh, changes made uh, by copyists. And so, and it was over about a thousand years. So we're going to dig in and explore some of these questions over the next two weeks. This week, we're going to talk primarily about the Old Testament and the Apocrypha. Next week, we'll talk about the New Testament, get into some of those issues and Constantine and all that good stuff. There. So, and a lot of this information I'm sharing today comes from a couple of sources. So, one, I uh, went to a conference a few weeks ago called the Gospel Coalition Conference, and they had an amazing presentation there uh, about this questions of canon with the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was put on as um, Phoenix Seminary has an institute there called Text and Canon Institute. Uh, Michael Kruger, John Mead, both brilliant um, professors of theology and, and history, church history, uh, and tons of resources, great presentations there. And then these books here I have by uh, Timothy Paul Jones, who's written a ton on this topic of, of how and why we should trust the Bible. Uh, if you're looking for a, a good resource on this, this one is so accessible. How We Got the Bible, Timothy Paul Jones. Really colorful, it's helpful for kids to read, very accessible. So a lot of information is coming from here. Uh, so, first question, who wrote the Bible? God. God. Right? And? People only men of God. Oh. By the Holy Spirit. Ooh. You get a gold star for your... <laughs> right? I mean, it, 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 it's, it's God and man. I mean, we, we do have... Right, uh, the Ten Commandments, literally written by the hand of God initially, but uh, the majority of the rest of the Bible is written by human authors as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Moses, probably the first main human author of the Bible, collecting, collating material, bringing it together to form the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, right? Penta, five, two, was, uh, uh, came from a word for container, like the first five containers or scrolls of, of the Bible, um, also called the Law or just Moses. Some of those old documents were originally written uh, on clay, um, so chiseled in. If you've been to the, um, the Art Institute, you can see some of these old, you know, where they've got these, these chunks of clay and they've got all this tiny writing on there. But also on papyrus, on leather, on parchment, um, almost entirely, as far as the Old Testament, in Hebrew, with some Aramaic in Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezra. And these were carefully copied. So we don't have any of these originals, right? So, but they were carefully copied. Uh, you read in, in the Old Testament and then New Testament about scribes, right? And so there was a, a, a very high emphasis put on the work of the scribes in copying these documents and ensuring that they were um, accurate. So um, again, we have uh, the, the Talmud, which is a collection of, of, 
of uh, rabbinic teachings and traditions about the Bible. And they say, uh, they said here, so every skin, meaning your know, parchment that you're writing on, every skin as you're copying must contain a certain number of columns equal throughout the entire book. The length of each column must not extend over less than 48 or more than 60 lines, and the breadth must consist of 30 letters. An authentic copy must be the exemplar from which the transcriber ought not in the least deviate. No word or letter must be written from memory, the scribe not having looked at the codex before him. So, I mean, it's a really big deal. Like, they're very careful systems in place. They weren't just scribbling stuff down. Oh, quick, I've got to make a copy of this. You know, my, my iPad died. I've got to make hand notes before I come to class this morning. I mean, they're a very sophisticated system. So years later, um, after Jesus, after the New Testament, admittedly, but uh, just to emphasize this, there's a group of scribes and scholars called the Masoretes. You may have heard of them. Uh, they worked with similar levels of diligence and care to ensure that the Bible is copied correctly. In fact, they knew how many letters and words were in every single book of the Old Testament. And then they also knew which letter, which word and which letter stood at the exact center of each book. I mean, that is how precise and careful, which makes sense because if you think about it, they're like, this is the word of God. This isn't like a will or a letter or like a bill of sale or some random note somebody wrote someone. If these truly are the words of God, then they have to be copied with the utmost care and attention. We're going to count every single letter so that we can ensure that every copy is identical. Now, even though we say this, like I said, for years and years and years, the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we have was about a thousand, was written about a thousand AD. So a thousand years after the birth of Christ. That's like our oldest copy for a long time. Uh, so you can understand that even though, you know, we had these scribes and the Masoretes taking utmost care and attention, you can see why there would be skepticism, right? I mean, your oldest copy is a thousand plus years removed from the originals, maybe 1500 years. Uh, how can you trust or believe that there weren't changes made during that time period? I mean, a thousand years is a long time. And then someone found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, you, have you heard of? You've heard of these, right? It's funny. I grew up, in, in, you know, my parents were not Christians, and my mom had some very confusing views of religion and spirituality. I grew up being taught by my mom that the Dead Sea Scrolls actually disproved Christianity and underline why we cannot trust the Bible. That's what I thought until for years. Even after becoming a Christian, because after becoming, like as a new Christian, I'm not wrestling with questions of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it really wasn't until I got to seminary and started learning about it, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> this like... <laughs> This makes my faith more secure, and, and this is, proves the authenticity of the Old Testament. So basically, 1947, so very recently, as a shepherd, he's wandering around in the caves in, in the area just uh, west of the Dead Sea region. It's very, very dry. Um, 
and he found these containers containing ancient scrolls that turned out to be this huge collection, 900 plus manuscripts or partial manuscripts um, dating from I think 100 years before Christ to about 200 years after. Now a lot of these, the majority actually, 900 plus documents, 700 of them are all to do with the community life of this small desert community of monks who were, uh, not monks isn't the right word, but um, uh, a Jewish, um, they weren't zealous, but, but they were hermits. Hermits. hermits, sure. Living out in the desert, they want to remove themselves from the Hellenistic culture and the influences, and they, um, they developed this community in Qumran. These are the Essenes. And so the majority of these documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls were about community life. In the, in, and so really interesting background information about Jewish culture and history at that time. And, um, but then included in there were about 200 uh, documents or partial documents um, of, of copies of the Old Testament books. In fact... They have multiple copies, multiple copies of every single book in our Old Testament, except for Esther. They didn't have Esther, but they had copies of almost uh, of everything else, including a copy of Isaiah that was written, they think, about 100 years before Christ. They say, why does this matter? A bunch of old documents. Remember, up until 1947, the oldest copy of the Old Testament was written around 900 or 1000 AD. They found a copy now of Isaiah and lots of other bits and pieces of other Old Testament documents written around zero, (laughs) birth of Christ, or even maybe a hundred years before that. We can compare these now. Oh, let's see how they've changed. Maybe over a thousand years, the text of these documents changed significantly. They start with Isaiah. It matches almost exactly. I mean, the, the differences are, there are differences, but they're almost insignificant, negligible differences. Over a thousand years, almost identical copies of Isaiah. It looks through these other documents. Some of those have a few more variations and changes. But what it showed was that the biblical, the Old Testament text, had it largely remained the same over that a thousand years that the Masoretes and others were copying the documents, giving us an enormous amount of confidence that the text that we have today really is, we don't have the originals, but really is the text that, that Jesus was using, the apostles were using, and uh, the Jewish community, the Israelites were using, uh, going all the way back. It's it's a really, really, really big deal. Um, so now, when we look at it, we can say the oldest copies of the Old Testament documents that we have are actually these Dead Sea Scrolls. And on top of that, they found um, a, a tiny, this was new to me, I didn't know this, uh, I was reading Walt, Walter Kaiser, or Norm Geiser, one of them was saying that they recently discovered a tiny silver scroll containing the benediction from number six, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. And they've dated that to around six or 700 BC, so even older. 
And again, the text in this tiny little silver scroll matches almost exactly the text that we have in our Bibles. So, just all, does this prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt? No, but it makes it highly likely and gives us a lot of confidence that the text that we have has remained stable, remarkably stable, over a long period of time. Does that all make sense? Your yes. questions so far? Or? Yeah, Dan. Just for com comparison, <clears throat> yeah. the earliest uh, copy of, I think it was Homer, of the Iliad or whatever, dates something like 800 years after the fact. Nobody questions the accuracy of, of Iliad, for example. Right. Um, and granted, it's an epic, what have you. It isn't trying to capture the words of God, what have you. But historians never challenge or Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars, for example, right. hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact, and it's treated as history. And we're going to talk about this more next week when we talk about the New Testament, but um, it's not just like we have one copy, one single copy of Isaiah right. written 1000 AD, one single copy of Isaiah written 100 BC, and they happen to be the same. We have like multiple copies so you can see overlay them and, and see okay where are the are there changes are there differences and we have the more copies you have of a text uh, that line up the more confident you can be that these are all uh, saying the same thing so um so who decided which books then should be in the old testament canon right the roman catholic church or was it Luther chucking out books because he didn't like him? Uh, was it who? How did we come up with this? Council of Jamnia. You what? Council of Jamnia. Yeah. Well, actually, so that I, that that's um, a myth also. So. Oh no kidding. Yeah. Good. So the uh, there's this idea. Well, not a myth, but a misrepresentation. So there was one idea was that there was this Council of Jamnia that met in I think AD ninety. Um, and this group of rabbis got together and according to the tradition they're the ones that decided you know this book should we keep it or does it go whatever and that's how we ended up the Jews decided on their Old Testament canon that council was actually called to investigate the correct interpretation of Ecclesiastes and I forget the other book Two, two books. They want to know, like, what's the correct way to interpret these books? And the majority of the time was spent focused on that. And there's no indication that they ever uh, went through this process of trying to determine what should be in the Jewish canon or not. But it keeps being passed down that this is how and when the Jewish canon was, was determined. Uh, obviously, before you even get to that, I mean, you got to go back, like, so what was happening at the time of David <laughs> or before then? And Josh McDowell, I mean, uh, Josh McDowell, he gives these five principles, which I think are pretty helpful. And they seem to have tracked pretty well with what we know happened. So first, uh, was the book written by a prophet of God? Like that was a big deal. Like, and in fact, we see, uh, I get ahead of myself here a little bit, but... Um, 
Maccabees, first Maccabees. Very clear, there are multiple, three different verses, three different times in the book of first Maccabees where uh, the author clearly states there is no prophet in Israel at this time. There's no prophetic voice speaking at this time. And which of course kind of undermines the authenticity of that book itself. I mean, the canonicity of that book. But they're being open. They're like, yeah, look, this is, there's been no prophetic voice in Israel for 400 years, and there still isn't. Uh, so first was the book written by a prophet of God. Like Moses, the book of Moses, like it was clearly written under the inspiration, leading, governance, direction, authority of God himself. Uh, and we have instructions in the law about what people were to do with false prophets, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, was, it was very important. Second, was the book confirmed by acts of God? Uh, so often miracles separated true prophets from false ones. Um, and there were signs that would substantiate God's message as being true. Uh, third, did his message tell the truth about God? Uh, fourth, does it come with the power of God? And fifth, was it accepted by the people of God? So we see that the books of Moses were clearly accepted as authoritative and binding on the people of God from a very early time. I mean, really no dispute about their place in the canon. This was the law, everything in Jewish culture was built upon that foundation. And this process, oh yeah, go ahead. I missed four and five. Was it five or four? Oh, it was, it was sorry, five. Um, yeah, was the book written by a prophet of God? Was the book confirmed by acts of God? Did its message tell the truth about God? And we'll, we'll send these notes out afterwards. Um, but um, does it come with the power of God? And was it accepted by the people of God? That's, that's from Josh McDowell. Now, the Jews didn't write those, right? Like, we didn't have, like, Ezra didn't say, and th this is how we shall determine which books are in the canon and give those five things. That's Josh McDowell, but he's summarizing, I think, helpfully, a process that we see happening um, in history. So, uh, you have the book of the law, and then you see this process continue guided by God's hand as people quickly affirm God's hand in certain of these books. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, just one small example, we read this. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, one of the things that's very easy to skip over in our Bible, but Daniel was writing only a short time after Jeremiah, and yet he already recognized Jeremiah's position as being a, a true prophet of God, authoritative, and part of, again, he talks about part of the scriptures. Like, clearly, already, Daniel is aware of this body of, of material encompassing both the law and the prophets that was like we didn't use the word canon but that was authoritative in some way that he possessed that this was 
something that he could write about and assume that his readers would know what he's talking about. I don't have to explain what I mean when I say this. Um, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And Jeremiah himself quotes, he doesn't used to talk about the scriptures, but Jeremiah himself quotes Micah uh, as being a true prophet of God and, and, and explaining how his prophecies have come true. And then you go through... Um, uh, Chronicles lists all kinds of similar connection points like that. It's really uh, remarkable. And over time, they developed um, among the Jewish people this sort of three-part division of the Old Testament that's different from the way that we think about it. Uh, so they had grouped their books according to the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The Law, first five books, the Prophets, uh, all the prophecies we think of, and then, and then the writings, all the other stuff. So, um, have you heard of the word Tanakh? Have you heard people use that word or wondered what that is? So, that comes from this division. So, the law is Torah in Hebrew. Um, the prophets is the Nevi'im. And then the writings is Ketubim. So, T-N-K, Tanakh. That's The Tanakh is like the the Jewish Bible, They're what we would call the Old Testament, the Tanakh, it's like the whole thing, the law, prophets, and the writings. So we have 39 books in our Old Testament. They only had 22 or 24, depending, but it's the same books. And you say, well, but the numbers are different, but it's the same books because they combined together all the minor prophets was considered one scroll, one book. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah were combined. Often um, Ruth was put together with Judges. All the double books were tied together as one. So we didn't have First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, you had Chronicles. Same for Kings and Samuel. Um, but this division, the you know, Law, the Prophets, and the Writings was almost certainly the Bible that Jesus used. It wasn't something that came up later. So we, how do we know that? Well, Luke 24, Jesus himself says, he's talking this road to Emmaus, and he says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. But he said the Psalms, not the writings. The Psalms were the first book in the writings, so sometimes they call that just the writings. I mean, the sons. So it's that three-part division. Jesus himself is saying, like, look, this is what, what I was telling you about. Like, everything written in your Bible, our Bible, the Law of the Prophets and Writings, everything points to me. Yeah, Angie. Um, a question, I guess I've always put into words in my head, but I don't know if it's puzzled me, is the repetition between, like, Kings and Chronicles. I mean, and reading through the Bible, my family just read through as I was growing right. up, just a chapter a night. So you, you get to a passage and you're like, we just read that. <laughs> it was a little confusing. And so then reading through with my kids, you know, um, I've done chronological Bibles, and that is taking, putting them right next to it, to each other. I'm like, well, this is verbatim. Like, you yeah. know, uh, Kings and Chronicles, um, basically saying exactly the same thing 
what was the difference between those and why was there two different ones? What was what's going on that there was like two different books that were saying essentially the same thing, sometimes going into a little more detail. And it says, What well, is this not all written in the Chronicles of the Kings of such and such? Like, you know, so they're referencing each other at the same time, mm -hmm. but why did they have two different ones and you know, what's the point of it? Um, if I'm remembering a lot correctly, so and you can correct me. <laughs> but um, my memory on this is that uh, it comes out to when they were written. Now I can't say like why why the significant like why did God feel that we had to have both of those in there? I'm not sure. I'm just wondering why but, the people. But they were written at different times. Okay, so King so Chronicles written after the exile. So that's really the big deal. So first second kings and then all the prophets, right? And then the exile or prophets overlapping with exile. And then chronicles written after the exile and return. And so now looking back and reflecting on how God worked through all of this history. So it's a lot of the same information, but if you read it closely, there's a different flavor to it because now we're looking now we're looking back and we're saying oh okay now after this the single most traumatic event in our entire history now let's look back and reflect on that season and see why and how we, we that would like came put out. a whole different light on it yeah. reading it knowing that and comparing them like they never do that yeah that's Wasn't correct Ezra yeah. okay. I mean didn't Ezra write Chronicles or is that just speculated. I'm not sure we know for sure. Yeah. It seems, seems to me, uh, just as we understand the Bible is written over 1,500 years, some of the books, when if you think of it in terms of, it may have been a collation, but you had scribes that were in the court of the kings who were noting the significant events. It was kind of their job. Yeah. And sometimes you might have multiple in order to be able to you know, corroborate the accounts in order to be able to, to make sure that they that they lined up, and so you can have different perspectives as they're as they're collated. But I did I have a question coming back to the historicity uh, of the canon. Um, so uh, Maccabees had been written in at the earliest the second century BC because right. the revolt happened at that time with Judas and Maccabeus. And so at some point then, uh, there had to have been a determination that, no, this is not scripture, this is apocryphal. You know, it, it not, not in the sense of it's apocryphal of dubious origin, it's apocryphal in terms of its canonicity for scripture. Yeah. It's an accurate rendering of the history of um, Bar Kokhba. Yeah. So that would suggest that either the canon was established beforehand and that was just simply never seriously mm -hmm. considered. Second question has to do with the five points that, or the five mm -hmm. criterion that, that McDowell observes. Uh, Esther arguably has some aspects in terms of the history of Purim and so forth, but Ruth is a story. Mm -hmm. it's, a, and it's significant, obviously, to, to David's line, but it's not prophetic. It's not it, it, mm -hmm. it isn't projecting, saying, thus saith the Lord, or right. what have you. And so, how does, how would that be reconciled, given the, the criterion, unless that's just a general principle? 
Yeah, to that question, I mean, I think Josh McDowell's principles are helpful, but they don't solve all the issues sure. like that. Um, and although his fifth principle there, accepted um, uh, by the people of God, and it was clearly included and accepted as part of God's word from a very early time, and presumably because it gives like such clear um, historical background and, and significance. Uh, well, first of all, it stands in stark contrast to Judges. Yeah. And then, secondly, it gives this clear uh, background for the line of David, which is going to be so important. Mm -hmm. So, But the first question, we're going to get to that, about Maccabees and the canon. So, kind of getting at it from a different angle, it's very interesting because you go to the New Testament, and the New Testament only cites as scripture from the books that we have in our Protestant and the Jews would have in their Bible. Nothing else. Jesus only cites as scripture from this limited R39 books, so the Jewish 22 or 24 books. Nothing else. Now, I know if you were here last week, Jude. <laughs> there are allusions in Jude and, and um, also in Hebrews to some apocryphal books, but they're not cited as scripture. And it doesn't mean that those are scripture either. And they're illusions, they're not. Uh, citations doesn't include them as being authoritative. Uh, Michael Kruger, who's a church historian and professor, he said, talks about the evidence coming from Josephus. Josephus is Jewish historian, writer, first century. And he says, for Josephus, the Old Testament canon seems quite settled. So this is word from Josephus, he said, for although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured neither to add or to remove or to alter a syllable to text. And he doesn't name the books, but he tells us, Josephus says that the Jews have 22 books that are rightly trusted. Five books of Moses, 13 books of prophets, and four remaining books. Um, so... Very early on, I mean, you have Josephus here saying, look, this is our canon. <laughs> it's not just a three-part division, but I'll tell you, there's 22 books in there, and nothing should be added or taken away from that. Uh, Jewish philosopher and writer Philo of Alexandria, writing about, he's only like 10, 20 years younger than Jesus, so writing right in the same period of time. Uh, he quotes extensively from the Old Testament, but again, only from the books that we consider to be canonical. Is like this. This is our scripture. If I'm going to quote from scripture, I'm going to use the books that we would use. I'm not coming from now. He doesn't say specifically, "Thou shalt not use these other things," but we see. I mean, he wrote so much and he quoted so much that just his modeling would seem to indicate what he felt to be canonical. Um, and. So along those lines, the Old Testament canon that you have those 39, that is the Jewish canon of scripture. Like before we even get into any of this Apocrypha or Roman, what, how the Roman Catholic Church got involved, our canon the, for the Old Testament, it goes back and is completely in line. And these are Jewish scriptures after all. Uh, so we're completely in line with um, uh, with Jewish 
uh, practice and understanding of what should be canonical when it comes to the Old Testament. So what about the Apocrypha? Well, in part, we could blame Alexander the Great for that <laughs> because he was responsible for the spread of Greek culture through the ancient Near East, through the Mediterranean, right? So it's about 300 years BC. Greek became the language, Greek culture, Greek language took over everything. And that led to a need to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. So as a result of that, we get this collection of books called the Septuagint. Septa, Savin, uh, Gint. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Septuagint is 70. Or 70, it's but I mean, I don't, I don't know. Because okay. of the number of scholars that translate. Well, that's what I was going to get to. So the, 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 the sort of myth or whatever, the story went that uh, they needed uh, 72 men. They had six men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, so 72 scholars, and they were put in 72 different rooms, and they were going to translate the Old Testament and produce this glorious thing. And it didn't happen that way, but the name stuck. And so if you see the abbreviation LXX, that's, that's Roman numerals for 70. The Septuagint is actually not a single document that we have, like a scroll that they produce. It's actually a collection of a whole lot of different translations and copies that we have that they kind of put together. So if you want to go look at the Septuagint now, you can. And those are going to be, well, we've taken this one and this one and kind of brought these together. Um, but it had a significant influence on the church. First of all, they changed the order of the books. So the Hebrew, you know, you have the law, the prophets, and the writings. They changed the ordering of the books into something more like what we now have in our Bibles. And importantly, they took at the same time, they took all a lot of other material that was circulating and just translated all of that as well, including these books that we now call the Apocrypha. So a little side note, technically you have Old Testament Apocrypha and like New Testament Apocrypha. Like we're, as far as like issues concerning what books should be in your Bible and Roman Catholic Church, we're talking, that's what we're talking about today, the Old Testament Apocrypha. There were some New Testament books that were circulating. We'll talk about those next week. Honestly, nobody's ever included those in their Bibles. Some people may debate about, oh, this or that gospel, but... Only skeptics. Only skeptics. <laughs> really, the debate's around the Old Testament Apocrypha here. So, really, we're talking about books, you know, Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, um, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, uh, Baruch, some other additions, stories, fables added in. So, at the time, I mean, it's a, not that different from now. Like, go to a Christian bookstore, and you can buy... I mean, there's more other books in there than there are Bibles, right? I mean, devotionals and history books and Christian living and, I mean, tons of other stuff. Even if you've got a study Bible, right? You've got God's Word and then you've got essays and notes and applications and everything else, right? And there was a lot of this kind of stuff happening at the same time because we didn't have just the text we had... Well, how do we interpret this? And what do we say about this? And how should we live as a result? So they're taking a lot of this devotional reading and writing, uh, and they 
they kind of envelop this into the Septuagint text. So the question is then, should we keep those books or not? So Jesus never quoted from them. Uh, New Testament writers didn't use them. Josephus, Philo didn't use them. But so I would say no. Um, but there was debate because they were there in the text and they were useful. People, we have Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, gives history of this Jewish revolt that was happening uh, before Christ. Really interesting. Go read it. Um, fascinating stuff. But the question is, should this be in the Bible? In fact, I brought this along. Um, it's the New Oxford Annotated Bible, New Revised Standard Version with the Apocrypha. And so, I mean, they're not hidden. They're, they're, the word is sort of hidden. They're, anybody can read these. And, um, and you can read them for yourself. And there's notes and analyses and everything else. But historically, these were there's not very strong evidence for including them. So there was an early canonical list um, from Melito of Sardis. So he was a church father writing around 150 AD. And he wrote a letter to a friend at the time, and he included the list of books that he considered to be authoritative in the church. It's not exactly the same as our list. Like, he doesn't include Lamentations and Proverbs. But... He does not include any of the apocryphal material. Like, none of it. It's not in there. Uh, There's a similar list produced uh, called the Briennios list around the same time. Also, none of the apocryphal material is in there. This is like 150 AD. This is not Nicaea. It's not Constantine. It's not... I mean, this is just very, very early. It's not included. Then in the fourth century, you have the so 300s, you have Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate Bible, and Augustine of Hippo. They take very different opinions, positions on the Apocrypha. So Jerome felt very strongly, for all the reasons I've just mentioned, that the Apocrypha, Apocryphal material should not be considered part of the canon of scripture, part of the authoritative word of God. He said, fine, read it. It's helpful for piety, but these should not be included. He doesn't ban them. He doesn't burn them. He recognizes them, but he says, look, it's where I'm translating the Hebrew scriptures. These are not there. We shouldn't be using them. So um, he said, uh, he said this, uh, as then the church reads Judas, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees, but does not admit them among the canonical scriptures, so let it also read these two volumes, he's talking about Wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiasticus, for their edification of the people, not to give authority to doctrines of the church. So he says, read them. That's fine. Like They're helpful for edification, for piety, for practice. Don't build doctrine of the church on these books. They should have no authority for that. Um, and later he said that he was didn't writing. That age well, by the way. You what? That didn't age well for yeah. Catholic Church. Yeah. Well, this is Jerome, right? And then he said, um, uh, 
he said, This preface to the scriptures may serve as a helmeted introduction to all the books which we turn from Hebrew into Latin, so that we may be assured that what is not found in our list must be placed among the apocryphal writings. Wisdom, the, he's talking about the book there, therefore, which generally bears the name of Solomon and the book of Jesus, son of Sirach and Judas and Tobias and the shepherd, are not in the canon. So I know this sentence is long, but the, he's saying multiple times, these books should not be in the canon of Scripture. Now, Augustine relied much more heavily on the Greek texts, uh, the Septuagint. And some people say that he felt like God had orchestrated the translation of the text into Greek, and therefore we should, whatever was in the Septuagint should be there. And he argued very strongly for that. And that position kind of drifted forward, but it wasn't decided then. It wasn't like, well, Augustine won and Jerome lost, and we went forward from there. Those ongoing debates, even within the Roman Catholic Church, for years, centuries on. So um, we read, uh, uh, this is John Mead. Um, he said, uh, Catholics before the Council of Trent were still debating the Old Testament canon in different ways. So we have uh, this guy, Cardinal Jimenez, X-I-M-E-N-E-S. It's like this grand inquisitor, part of the Spanish Inquisition, forcing people to mass convert. Like it's a big, it's a, a really important figure in the Roman Catholic Church. And he also published a book that listed, uh, it was like a side-by-side -side version. So he had the Hebrew, and then he had the Latin Vulgate. And then he had the uh, Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint, all together so you could see which were on there. And he, of course that raised questions about well which books should be in there because I'm taking the Septuagint and there's more than I've got with the Hebrew text. And he said, Cardinal, Roman Catholic Cardinal Jimenez, but there are books outside the canon which the church has received more for the edification of the people than for the authoritative confirmation of ecclesiastical dogmas. Hmm. Roman Catholic Cardinal leading the Spanish Inquisition and he's saying like look there are books here that are outside the canon that should not be used for authoritative confirmation of ecclesiastical dogmas. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. Thankfully the magisterium can change its mind. <laughs> yes indeed. Cardinal Cajetan Big deal when you get to Luther, right? I mean, he, not happy, not so fond with, with, with Luther over what he's doing. A staunch critic of the Reformation, yet he was also very committed to the scriptures and the search for the original documents, studying uh, Hebrew. And he, and he said, so again, this is Kaiten saying. Is it yeah, I've heard it pronounced as well. In the Roman Catholic circles. Okay. Roman Catholic opponent of Luther. And he said, Here we close our commentaries. He's writing commentary on the Old Testament. Here we close our commentaries on the historical books of the Old Testament. For the rest, that is Judas, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees, are counted by St. Jerome out 
of the canonical books and are placed amongst the Apocrypha along with Wisdom and Ecclesiasticus as is plain from this other book. Um, uh, he's got this long text um, and then he says, says these are helpful for the edification of the faithful but should not be used considered canonical. It's, it's remarkable. It's like he's going to go toe-to-toe with Luther and a whole bunch of other stuff. But when it comes to well, which books are really authoritative, it's the Jewish canon of scripture. These other books, helpful for edification, but we shouldn't be building dogma on them. It kind of changed uh, during the Catholic Counter-Reformation in the mid to late 19th century. Well, well, yeah, so before that, we have the Council of Trent. And of course, the Council of Trent formally says, if you don't accept these books as canonical, anathema, like a curse, which was a new thing. Like, like there never, there's been this debate, even within the Roman Catholic Church up to this time, over whether these books should be included or not. And now, at the Council of Trent, they kind of went too far and said, wait a second, now anathema, curse. And they're starting to uncover more documents now showing that even at the time of the Council of Trent, there are Roman Catholic theologians who are debating still. Like, we're not trying to settle this argument, <laughs> but then they did. Trent was when? Uh, what was that? I, I didn't write down. Oh, really should know that. 16, oh, that seems like 16, 1647. How about that? 1647. 1647. 16. It's like Price is Right. Yes. <laughs> wow. Um, did we get an answer? Uh, it says. Uh, I mean, it's a period. 1545 to 1563. Okay, there we go. Early. So, um, so even anyway, so the uh, even at the time of the Reformation, you had Roman Catholic theologians still debating whether these books should be used, and those who were focused on going back to the original documents generally sided with Jerome and his understanding of the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew canonical list. So even though that position didn't prevail after the, at the Council of Trent, uh, that debate was still a live one. It wasn't like it had been fixed and they were just affirming a fixed list. So it's absolutely still getting debate. And again, I just want to go back. Something often gets lost in these debates. Should we have the Apocrypha? Yes or no? Yes or no? Uh, the 39 are never debated. So it's not like we're arguing with Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. Well, what about Isaiah? What about Proverbs? Or what about, I mean, nobody's arguing about those books. <laughs> um, they're, they're in every canonical list. Like we should have absolute confidence that the books that we have in our New Old Testament are the ones that God wants us to have there. <laughs> Even if there's debate here on the Apocrypha, and I think there, I just go back to again, Jesus never cited from it, New Testament authors didn't use it, and the earliest, uh, uh, and the early church seems not to have included it. Moreover, these are Jewish scriptures, and um, the Jews never included them as part of their canon. 
So the, 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 as I understand it, part of the reasoning for it, again, they're, they're trying to stick their thumb in the eye of the Protestants uh, <laughs> at this time to, to harshly oppose that and to dis severely discourage people from joining in uh, yeah. and abandoning the Catholic Church for, for Protestantism. But some of the doctrinal distinctions, uh, distinctives that emanate from the Apocrypha, among other things, is praying for the dead, praying to the dead, and so forth. And there's a loose allusion in, uh, was it Peter? About baptizing, uh, right. being baptized on behalf of the dead, which is a weird right. thing that we can get into next week because it's New Testament stuff. But uh, some of the, the rationalizations was really to try to set the Catholic Church apart from the Protestants and to make that distinction and to double dog dare, triple dog dare, People, you know, to try when the to Protestants were really sticking their thumb in the eye of the Catholics too, so there was there was a lot of confrontation going. A lot of sort of. Uh, it was like an early Twitter war. Right? It would have fit in perfectly. People were getting canceled all the time. Yeah, but if you read, I don't know. I I think it's first. I can't pull it up, but if you read the passage in First Maccabees, I think it's four, where they're talking about prayers for the dead. Even if you read that, and I, I can bring it in, I'll find it and bring it in next week. It's really, like it's actually, a it's a real stretch to get from that text to Roman Catholic mm -hmm. doctrine right now. Um, in fact, the passage to me, is, is more telling for its emphasis on the resurrection, their belief in the resurrection of the dead. That's like when I read that passage, I'm like, wow, this is like they really believe this. Mm -hmm. uh, that was more interesting to me. And the, the comment there could almost just be read like, like we should pray for these people, but not in a sense like, like, well, anyway, it, I'll bring it next week because it, it, it is it's a week. It's also the argument for purgatory, and it's super weak, super weak. Right, but and then they'll, they'll try and pull out other New Testament verses, talk about purgatory, which also... Well, I think I talk, talked with you about this a little bit. I think part of the thumb sticking connects to... The Apocrypha helps undermine the claim of justification by faith alone. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, <clears throat> They want it to be faith plus works, so that's a. I think that's a part of mm. the and that's reason a big why. Thing. That's a big thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Like I went, I told Jonathan, and I can't remember which book of the Apocrypha this came from, but I went with my parents to um, Catholic Church shortly after I became a Christian, and they read from the one of the apocryphal books in the service, mm -hmm. and. Um, it was talking about obedience to parents atones for sin. And I was like, no, that's that's not true. <laughs> um, so I should try to, I'll see if I can find it would, that. It would be nice, I mean, that would, to have, the to have that, like as a yeah. parent, you yeah. can yeah. bring that out. <laughs> be your yes. club. <laughs> but. So what, what does a lectern say at, at the end of every reading? Oh, yeah. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. And, and so it reinforces. Oh, yeah. It isn't, oh, yeah, you know, we don't really mean, no, they mean that. But even the Anglican Church included um, 
they didn't consider these books to be canonical, but still included them in the Book of Common Prayer and in, in reading. So they, it's like, well, yes, we're saying they're not canonical, but when we include them in, in, in the daily readings like that, it's hard not to sort of see them yeah. blur together as one. Like, how would you... It sort of becomes like an academic thing, like, well, we're saying it officially these are not, but I mean, you know. Yeah. And I can't remember, you guys can help me out, my brain says that when Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate, mm-hmm. he included the Apocrypha against his will. That's yeah. my recollection. Just begrudgingly. Yeah. Like, they're there, but he didn't want them to be there. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. He was arm-twisted. Yes, arm-twisted. So am I, am I hearing generally, Jonathan, that, that there was never a council, there was never a, a group that established the Old Testament Correct. canon, it just kind of came together that way, traditionally yeah. speaking. Right. Yes. And then it's just recognized after the fact. Right. Because there were, there were all sorts of early church fathers that had lists of books, both Old Testament and New Testament. Right. Um, and I don't think it was until Athanasius that we really got the list that we commonly understand. Yeah, um, and there are lots of lists, and they don't all align. And some of them have different books, but um, but the earliest ones give really, uh, as far as Old Testament lists, align with the Jewish Old Testament canon, and do not include the apocryphal books. So, um, also, so I'm saying Council of Jamnia established the Old Testament canon. Then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, perpetuate the. The story. That apocryphal story. Or yeah. <laughs> well, so speaking of Athanasius, Athanasius said, um, he's talking about the, the canon, he said, these canonical books are the springs of salvation. And just, you know, we talk about all this historical and stuff and whatever, and just want to just bring it back to, I love, I love that phrase that he used. These are the springs of of salvation. This is like a life and death matter. This is, it's not just an academic exercise or textual criticism or stick it to the Catholics. I mean, this is this is really about Jesus. I mean, John 5, right? You study the scriptures diligently because you think um, that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Like, this is why we're talking and debating about this. Because these speak about Jesus. They point to Jesus. They provide the foundation, the, the seedbed for Jesus and our salvation in Christ alone. That's, that's why all of this matters, why it's important. That's why we're going to engage in conversation with people about us. Why we, because that's what it comes down to is... Is salvation. This is a salvation issue. We need to trust, be able to trust that the scriptures we have are true. And we can, I think, especially for the Old Testament. And then we'll talk more about the New Testament. So then would you say week. the Apocrypha and these other ones that we've been talking about, those don't point to Christ. They're just kind of adding extra. Yeah, I mean, we have history about... Uh, you know the Maccabean revolt. We have fables and yeah. stories about yeah. Bell and the Dragon and Susanna. And one of the other main distinguishing factors then mm-hmm. that goes in with the other parts of it, mm-hmm. written by the prophet of God, confirmed, you know, and also mm-hmm. points to Christ. Well, I think Christ, Jesus, 
but never citing or referring to the apocryphal materials and referring repeatedly to this traditional Jewish understanding of law, prophets, and writings, which seemed to indicate that he didn't consider those books to be pointing to him um, either. And he doesn't come right out and say, don't read these, these don't. The scriptures testify me about me, but the apocrypha do not. He doesn't say that, but his practice seems to indicate strongly that that's what he believed. Rightly or wrongly, I, I see the, the, the two books of Maccabees as, being, as very different from the rest of them. Because it, it, it reads well, all this history, history yeah. whereas the other ones, I mean, Bell and the Dragon and all these They're other, the most normal sounding of the yeah, books. I mean... <laughs> well, that, oh, that's the other interesting thing. So, um, the Septuagint, uh, so the New Testament authors are for the... I don't know, like 70% of the time, their quotes, uh, citations and quotations are coming from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Not all of them, but the majority. So clearly, it's not like you can say, well, the New Testament authors didn't quote the Apocrypha because they were using the, the Hebrew Bible, and if they'd been using the Septuagint, then maybe they would have. Well, they were using the Septuagint. Yeah. They, like, they were very aware of all the material that was in there. And yet they very specifically and clearly chose not to use that material, quote, or cite from it. So, like, this is the book, but we're only using this part of it when we're referring... Except for Jude. Back. Yeah. <laughs> Jude. He's interesting. So, Enoch is not considered part of those apocryphal books. That was just this collection of material that was circulating at the time. And he has that one quote from in there, which it is, that is tricky to wrestle with. Like I said last week, I mean, he doesn't say all of Enoch is canonical, but nobody really thought that it was canonical, so I don't think he had to. He doesn't quote it as scripture, like as scripture says, as it is written. He doesn't use that. Well, and it only legitimizes that thing that he's referring that to. That one particular, yeah. which really aligns with pretty much what we already know, so it doesn't add anything new. And then you have the allusions to some of the other material, but it's not, um, which might have come from um, Esdras, I guess. I think that's the book. But, I think yeah. um, it's good. This conversation is really good for street-level apologetics in the sense that this does come up. People will say, like they will say, you can't trust the, the Bible that we have, like how do we know it was passed on correctly and so forth. And so this, I, I want you to kind of think in terms of, we talked about like irreducible complexity as one argument in the whole design arsenal. <laughs> this canon, canonicity argument is one argument in the entire can we trust the Bible arsenal. Right. And we should talk like there's another line of reasoning because someone could you could get to the end of the, the line and say, OK, great. We know that it was passed on correctly. How do you know it's true? Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's a like there's another line of argument that we take. And one of those lines is, well, let's look at the fulfillment of prophecy. Right. Does it make sense? Yeah. So just keep in mind that this. This canonicity argument is important because people do bring it up. Like I've had these conversations with coworkers, and you just—it's good to be able to 
have some understanding of, of all of this so that you can talk about it and point them to resources and so forth, and also so you can have confidence. But there are other arguments that we will probably also want to bring to bear at the same time. Yeah, the evidence of all the prophecies that were fulfilled yeah. is huge. Yeah. There's also, this is a different book I have. It gives um, 50 different significant archaeological and historical proofs yeah. from concerning the Old Testament Bible, where what they've discovered, we have tangible archaeological evidence that backs up or affirms something that was written about in the Old Testament. And there's yeah. many more. These are just like 50 common popular ones. But, um, That's like another line. Yeah, it's a no whole another line. Yeah. You know, why, like the accounts, like when Joseph is sold into slavery, the amount he sold for was 20 shekels or something, which was the exact going rate for slaves at the time that Joseph is believed to have been sold into slavery. It had changed hundreds of years later when it, you know, people like, oh, well, Genesis wasn't written until like... Um, you know, uh, whatever. I don't know what people say now. Like uh, exile, I think, right? Post-exilic, they'll say, you know, way, way, way later. Well, the slave price had changed completely. So how would they know that it was 20, 20 shekels? And I think later, someone else sold for like twenty-one shekels, which is like inflation, inflation. You know, um, but that, that's just like one little detail. And there's tons of these like little textual historical details that can help us identify this is this is true it's not something created later after the fact and when you get to acts it's like super super detailed too so like luke oh, yeah. is using luke uses specific titles for leaders like government leaders that are specific to those areas and he uses different titles for different areas it's like he's so and at first, people thought, "Oh, he's he's wrong. He's calling and he's calling this, and they were called this." And then they will find evidence, like, "Oh no, he was right." Hmm. It's just another argument. So it's like another sort of. And we'll talk about these. Yeah, line of attack. So one, one thing is ten twenty. Um, the Roman Catholics did not add books at the Council of Trent. Like it just. Well, want to be careful, disagree with their inclusion of the Apocrypha, but it's not like they were just ticked at Luther and were like, well, fine, we're going to add these yeah. in. Like, there had been debate theory. about the Apocrypha. They've been present since the Septuagint, um, and there had been debate, and different people in Augustine had argued for them years earlier. At the same time, Luther and, and the Protestants during the Reformation were not just doing, pulling Marcion and, and cutting stuff out of the Bible. Because they were recognizing, in fact, the Hebrew scriptures have never had these books in them. So those are just two caricatures that we want to make sure and sort of easy to get off the table right away when talking with people. Catholics weren't just adding books willy-nilly, and nor were the Protestants just cutting stuff for no reason because they, they were mad um, over certain issues. Like, that's... that's but long the decree historical. that if you don't believe in them, you're anathema is well, that's, significant. Yeah, no, no, that's that's significant for sure. But um, anyway, I mean, co, co redemptrix I think, is a bridge. Several so bridges. Yeah, the, the doctrine. Yes, the doctrinal <laughs> issues for sure. Those of us who are former 
to grind. <laughs> grind away. Hey, at least it's not a blunt axe. All right, let me pray. Michael needs to go preach when we get into church. So, Lord, um, we're so thankful uh, for the gift of your word and thankful for the way in which you supernaturally um, guarded and kept uh, this word uh, over the centuries, thousands of years, guiding the transmission of this text so that we could have confidence that this book that we call your word is truly your word still to us today. And we thank you for this gift and we pray that you would help us to treasure it as such in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. We'll talk about the New Testament next week. Thank you very much.